Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 18th, 2023. Just back from the Philippines where I did a conference with my old friend Maria Ressa, the winner, of course, of the Nobel Prize in 2021. One of the other speakers at Maria's event was Hillary Clinton, who had a very pessimistic, dark view of technology, particularly when it comes to technology and privacy. She didn't put a name or a company, so to speak, to the face of this increasingly dystopian vision she has. But had she, in terms of technology that knows us, she might have talked about a new company called Clearview AI, uh, which is developing facial recognition glasses that allow us or allow people to immediately identify everyone they see on the street. Apparently, this technology has already been used a, a million times by the U.S. police, according to the BBC, um, and it's now in public defenders' hands, for better or worse. Clearview, of course, uh, if you go to their website, they claim to be helping shape the war in Ukraine, perhaps like Elon Musk. I'm not sure what shaping the war exactly means. It's rather eerie term. Um, and they claim to be dedicated to providing the most cutting-edge technology to law enforcement to investigate crimes. It kind of reminds me of Peter Thiel's Palantir. Uh, they sound a very creepy company, and they've certainly creeped out one of uh, tech journalism's uh, great investigators of privacy, Kashmir Hill. She works for the New York Times, and she has a book coming out tomorrow. It's already been short, long-listed for the FT Business Book of the Year, Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. Wonderful title, wonderful cover, and a wonderful reporter is joining us from the Hudson Valley in uh, New York. Um, Kashmir, it's, th these kind of books tend to be quite dramatic, and I know that publishers want to sell books. Um, but how much of this book is a, a metaphor about the future of privacy and how much of it is about this particular company, Clearview AI? Well, it's definitely both. Um, uh, I am telling the story of Clearview AI, which did this quite shocking thing of going and scraping billions of photos from the public web, including social media sites, to create this facial recognition app that they were secretly selling to police around the world. Uh, you mentioned Peter Thiel earlier. He's actually their first investor. They probably wouldn't exist without the $200,000 they got from Peter Thiel. Right? Yes. <laughs> but it's also about, you know, they are one of these artificial intelligence companies that went and, you know, treated the public commons of the internet as their, uh, their kind of reaping ground, collected all of this information from the public, uh, you know, these companies in general have made facial recognition technology much more powerful because of collecting our faces on the Internet. And so it is about this general trend that we are seeing of AI just getting so powerful in part from the information that we have made available to them. And it really is changing 
just our control over our data. And then with Clearview AI, specifically our ability to be anonymous in public. Two of the characters who you write about uh, in this company, Hone Ton Thad, we'll talk about him, and the Australian entrepreneur behind it, and Richard Schwartz, a, a right-wing politician promoting it. They don't sound particularly attractive characters, but if I want to find out about them, I can run image searches on Google and I can find their faces pretty easily. Um, what's different about what these people are doing? I mean, if we carry our smartphones around, which are supercomputers in our pocket, uh, can't we pretty much do what Clearview AI is claiming to do already? Well, you know Juan Tontat and Richard Schwartz's names, in part thanks to me. I mean, when they first were making this app, they were hiding their identities and trying to hide their affiliations with it. But you're able to Google their name to find these images. The superpower that they're selling is that you just start with someone's face. Uh, you know, you take a picture of them and it will bring up their name, bring up all of this information that's available about them on the Internet and maybe bring up photos that aren't associated with their name, um, maybe for good reason. Uh, you know, uh, this has happened a lot within uh, the kind of universe of uh, online sex work, uh, naked photos, photos taken without our consent that are posted online. This would be a way to find that material just with a photo of someone's face. So your book is an attempt to make sense of this, not to scare people. Uh, where are we with Clearview? Clear is, um, is it the canary in the coal mine? Is it the next Google? Or is it just one of those internet companies that shocks for a, a few days and then goes away? It's, it's hard to know at this moment. The investors in Clearview do hope that it's the next Google. They specifically said they hope that you know uh, Clearview would become the... Uh, the quintessential term that you, when, when you talk about, you clear view someone's face, you find out who they are, you look them up on the internet just with their photo. Um, they have faced a lot of backlash uh, since the initial so report speak, right? I did about them. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and in Europe specifically, a lot of privacy regulators said, hey, what this company did is illegal. They shouldn't be collecting our citizens, uh, you know, photos and making face prints for them without their consent. And they've said, you know, uh, Clearview, you cannot do business in Europe. And Clearview isn't now doing business there. They also said that Clearview needed to delete Europeans' face prints uh, and photos. And that Clearview has not done, and it also has not paid fines that have been issued by privacy regulators. Uh, so that's been, uh, that, that, that's something that will still play out, I guess, in the, the European legal system. In the US though, they're continuing to operate. They have, you know, they have contracts with the Department of Homeland Security, with the FBI, with various police forces. Um, and so while they are facing lawsuits here, they are continuing to operate and to sell this database that now has 30 billion faces in it. But isn't what they're doing in principle legitimate? So from a law, a law enforcement point of view, to be able to identify uh, a face with a real person, if someone, uh, we, there are cameras everywhere, and you can't blame Clearview for that. So if someone's photo is taken, robbing someone, killing someone, planting a bomb, this technology can be used to identify who they are? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the complicated and nuanced story that I wanted to tell in this book is that 
it's not easy to say facial recognition technology shouldn't exist because there are good use cases. And this is really the, the tack that Clearview AI has taken. They say, you know, we're just selling this to police. We're trying to make the world more secure. I remember specifically Juan Tontat, the first time I interviewed him, said, you know, I made this app because I want to be able to catch pedophiles. I think we should only sell it to police because otherwise it'll be pedophiles using it, you know, to search the faces of children. And that was really fascinating to me because as I dug into the real history of Clearview AI and where the company came from and what it was thinking in its early days, it actually didn't even have police on the radar. Originally, it just wanted to sell it to whoever would pay for it, whether it was private industry, one of its early investors told me they just wanted to give Clearview AI to everyone eventually. And it, they only ended up uh, kind of working primarily with police departments because uh, a real estate security officer who used to work in the NYPD said, oh, you really need to show this to my former colleagues. They would love it. You mentioned that uh, Teal was the, the first investor. He was also a very early investor, if not the first investor in Palantir. How much does Clearview fit in to this new world of surveillance technology? Palantir seems to be a very successful company, but one that is still very creepy in many ways and is being backed by the security agencies and used by them. Yeah, so Clearview AI is, you know, getting used by, uh, it's get used all the time um, for security purposes. Uh, the examples we know about is in the U.S. when we had uh, the kind of revolt against the election results on January 6th when uh, people stormed the Capitol. It was used to find some of those people and identify some of those people. Um, it's, as you were saying in the opening remarks, uh, Clearview gave its technology for free to Ukraine to use in the war. Uh, you know, Whatever that means. I mean... <laughs> Well, it's interesting how it's been used, right? They said it would be used to out kind of Russian spies, you know, identify people who have been separated from their families. But one of the use cases uh, that's kind of been reported on the most is they've used it to identify dead Russian sol soldiers and to find their social media accounts to reach out to their loved ones and let them know essentially that the, their, their son or their brother or their husband is dead. And it was a method, the Ukrainians said, to try to turn the tide in Russia and get people to turn against the war. Should we? I mean, a lot of this depends on our politics, and I use that word, our carefully, uh, Kashmir. If, if the Russians were using this, to creep out the Ukrainians, everyone would be horrified. But if it's Ukrainians using it, it's fine. In the same way as if this technology was used for January 6th, most people would say, well, that's fine. These were insurrectionists and they were breaking the law. On the other hand, if the technology was used for Black Lives Matter demonstrations, uh, everyone would be, or at least everyone who tends to watch this show in, at the New York Times um, on the coast would be horrified. Does a lot of this technology, is it, sort of a, a piece of our echo chamber culture and, and we can pretty much forecast how people are going to feel given uh, the political implications of how it's being used. Well, what was interesting looking at the history of facial recognition technology here in the States is that over and over again, there was kind of bipartisan rejection of it. This, this fear for 20 years that something like Clearview AI was going to come along and people on the left and the right 
were talking about how this could be so chilling for civil liberties, this idea of being tracked all the time in public, being able to identify protesters um, was really chilling. And so politicians here kept saying, we need to pass a law to make sure this doesn't happen. And then uh, they never did. And Good luck, I... surprise, surprise again. <laughs> And I mean, we do see this technology getting used exactly how you're saying uh, in China, used to identify reportedly, you know, protesters in Hong Kong, um, Russia using it to identify protesters against the Ukrainian war. Um, even in the U.S., it was used by the Miami Police Department um, during the the protest against police uh, brutality there in Miami when one of the protesters threw a rock at an officer. They uh, reportedly used slavery AI to identify the, the person and it was used to prosecute. So, I mean, it, it, this is the hard thing about these kinds of technologies. Right, but you didn't answer my question. I mean, it, it is, I mean, for you, you're unambiguously a progressive on the left when you were reporting this story. Were there applications where you thought, sure, that's fine to track down a pedophile or track down a, a January 6th insurrectionists, whereas if it's used to certainly, and, and we'll talk about this after the break, misidentify African-American women or used to track down political dissidents in China, it's totally unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, I think no matter what side of politics you're on, seeing the way that facial recognition technology has been used to falsely arrest people for the crime of looking like someone else yeah, is going to be opposed. No one's going to defend that. Not yeah. even Peter Thiel, I would hope. I mean, I do think that's what makes this so complicated. The, I have talked to police officers who have used facial recognition technology and Clearview AI specifically to solve very horrendous crimes. So the idea of just banning it entirely or taking it completely out of their hands, um, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like the right, uh, the right thing to do. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. We're talking to Kashmir Hill, the author of a really important new book, Your Face Belongs to Us. It's already long listed for FT Book of the Year. I'm sure it'll get on the short list. It's going to be a sensation. Um, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, uh, the Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics, a wonderful new publication. I'm going to run a short ad for them, and then we'll be back. I want to talk more broadly about how Clearview fits in to big tech, and of course, to AI. So we'll be back in a second with Kashmir Hill, the author of Your Face Belongs to Us. Don't go away, anyone. If you go away, we'll know. We're all watching you. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. We are back with Kashmir Hill of the New York Times, the author of uh, Your Face Belongs to Us. Uh, Kashmir, if this technology was being developed by Google or, God forbid, Facebook, we would be truly up in arms. But you write about Facebook and Google's um, attitude to this kind of technology. Maybe you can talk about that first and then address any direct relationship that Facebook or Google or any other big tech company might have with Clearview. Yeah, this is what's interesting. You know, when I first found out about Clearview AI a few years ago when I got this tip, um, yeah. 
and I talked to experts about it, everyone was shocked. They couldn't believe that uh, this was possible, that facial recognition technology had come far enough along that this random company that no one had heard of uh, claimed that it could identify just about anyone with 99% accuracy. And that was part of what was so shocking about the Clearview AI story. But working on the book and kind of tracing the history of facial recognition technology, I found out that Google and Facebook had both developed something like Clearview AI internally, this ability to kind of take a photo of a stranger and, and identify them. Uh, Google had this as far back as a decade ago, and it's then chairman Eric Schmidt said it was the one technology that Google developed and decided not to release, that they held back because they felt like it was too dangerous. I have this ridiculous scene in the book of engineers at Facebook with a smartphone kind of attached to the brim of a baseball cap and they're looking around and when they point the camera at someone's face, it calls out their name. And it was interesting to me because Google and Facebook are not necessarily known as you know the privacy protective companies. They've done so many things that have just radically changed our notions of privacy and, and been seen as incredibly invasive from, you know, street view cars going around and kind of mapping the whole world and putting everyone's homes on the internet uh, to getting us all to put our real names and many photos of ourselves on the internet. And so it was pretty shocking that they, you know, developed, uh, developed the technology and, and held it back and kind of decided this is too taboo. And so when Clearview AI came along, what they did wasn't a technological breakthrough. It was really an ethical breakthrough that they were willing to do something that other companies hadn't been willing to do. It's kind of interesting. And we'll talk about OpenAI and uh, ChatGPT in a minute. But in the same way as Google developed the ChatGPT technology in a white paper, it got developed by another company. I mean, is there an argument, Kashmir, that this stuff is fine? You you're on the street, you look at someone, they look interesting, you take their photo, uh, and then you find out more about them. Is that deeply problematic in a, in a political, cultural sense? I, I think it's a question. Um, you know, I can see the appeal of something like this. I've certainly been at work conferences where there's someone that I should know their name. I can't remember it. It's embarrassing. Uh, I can imagine taking their photo and then quickly finding that out. Uh, at the same time, I could just ask them. Um, I, you know, I, I, I could see a, a switch flipping where this becomes normal and that we expect and do this to people. We look up their faces. But I write so often uh, about the malicious uses of technology that I know there would be horrible outcomes. You know, there would be somebody who, you know, you got on the, the train, you got on the subway, and you bumped into somebody, or you did something rude, you were having a bad day, and that person takes a photo of you, finds out your name, and then, you know, devotes themselves to destroying your reputation online and writes horrible things about you from, from then on out. And just the loss of kind of everyday privacy at a restaurant where you're having this intimate conversation, safe in the kind of anonymity of, of being in a space with strangers, you would just lose that. Yeah, it, it is chilling. Uh, um, how clunky is the product? I mean, you write about it and it still requires us to put these annoying glasses on. Um, for, from in, in terms of clear view, you, I mean, couldn't you use this technology without these annoying glasses, these augmented reality glasses? 
Yeah, so Clearview Eye has been working on these glasses. Uh, they did tell me when I we originally looked at the code for Clearview AI when I first reported about the company in 2020 and saw that they might be able to pair with augmented reality glasses. And the company said, oh, that's not a product we ever planned to release. It was just something we were fooling around with in the lab. Uh, and now they have been working on these glasses for the Air Force. And the idea is that if you're a soldier, um, you could wear these glasses and kind of um, know who someone was. At this point, they work on about ten, a person 10 feet away. The dream is 50 feet away. And that you would kind of know if somebody was approaching you with you know, ill intent. You Maybe you have faces that are on a checklist and they kind of glow red. Uh, so at this point, they're really thinking about it for, for military use. Um, but, but the most frequent use is an, an app where you just, you know, either hold the, the phone up to somebody and take a picture, or you have an existing photo and you just upload it. And then it pulls up all the photos of that person that Clearview AI has scraped from the internet, along with a URL to where they are on the internet. And I myself have seen surprising photos in Clearview AI's app. Uh, where I couldn't even believe that it recognized me because I'm walking down the street. Uh, I'm in the background of someone else's photo. It has me in profile. And at first, I'm not even sure it's me until I recognize, oh my gosh, that's the jacket I bought at a vintage store in Tokyo. That, that has to be me. It, 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 can, it can kind of be incredible how it's able to pick up your face. You've used this term scrape from the internet. It sounds like scraping something off the floor, but this is what all the big tech companies do and, and, and did. I mean, Facebook, uh, Google became Google because they scraped up the entire internet to create their search engine. Uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT is dependent on scraping all of our intelligence from the internet to create uh, ChatGPT. So is there a problem with using this term scraping stuff from the internet if it's free if it's legal what's wrong with that yeah and this is Clearview AI often compares themselves to Google they say you know we're doing the same thing Google took all of the information online and made it you know uh, organized it made it easier to search and we've done the same thing with faces we've just taken all these public faces and we're making them easier to find um, I do think this is a huge question for our age is what kind of privacy or property rights we think information in the public commons of the internet should have because it is just so easy for machines to go out and download that that information in mass which is basically what scraping is um, and it is happening all the time uh, and it's you know our faces right now maybe one day it'll be our voices so that you can upload a little bit of you know, Andrew's voice and then find everything you've ever recorded uh, in your podcast or on YouTube. You'd be, you'd be, there'd be an avalanche. You'd be so bored in about 10 <laughs> seconds, you'd go to bed. It would be a good way to fall asleep if you, if you struggle with that. Is all this cashmere, in all seriousness, is it these big tech companies being in a candy store and having to resist themselves? Um, You've written that uh, OpenAI, uh, Sam Altman, who's presenting himself as the enlightened face of big tech, Silicon Valley, if there's such a thing, uh, says that he doesn't want ChatGPT to become a facial recognition machine. Given the paralysis in Washington, D.C. on everything, given how tech illiterate uh, Washington, D.C. and politicians seem to be, 
are we relying on big tech companies like Facebook and Google and OpenAI uh, to behave themselves, to control themselves in the candy store? I think the short answer is yes. You know, uh, looking at the history of facial recognition technology and how often uh, essentially people gathered in D.C. for congressional hearings, for meetings at federal regulators to talk about, oh, my goodness, like uh, here comes this new artificial intelligence. It's really threatening our privacy in a new way. We have to do something about it. We need to pass a law. And then just nothing happened for 20 years. And then Clearview AI came along. I do feel a bit of deja vu seeing the same thing happening right now with these new generative AI companies. Uh, and it's the same, it's some of the same questions. Uh, do we want them scraping the internet? Uh, do we want them releasing these tools that are being widely used when we don't kind of, we don't have a way of testing them to make sure that they're not biased or we don't know how accurate they are. And we don't know all the information that they've collected and exactly how it's being used. Um, these, are the, these are the same questions. And so I, I'm not sure if the outcome will be different this time, if we'll actually see a law come of it. I suspect you do. And I suspect you know that nothing will come of it because government authorities in the US in particular, as I said, are paralyzed politically and a slow, whereas this stuff is incredibly fast. And there's probably another Clearview AI in the pipe, which is more dangerous, better financed, uh, and already more ubiquitous. Isn't that almost inevitable? It does feel inevitable. I mean, we have not seen anything happen at the federal level in the US. It, it does seem like we're paralyzed on the national stage when it comes to lawmaking and regulating around technology, but we have seen things happen in the States here. Uh, and certainly Europe has been better about well, Europe, I mean, Hillary some privacy laws. Hillary, uh, the only thing Europe excels in is saying no to this tech. Uh, there's no new tech companies. What would you like to see in the US? Does there need to be uh, a, a new arrangement between big tech silicon valley and, and washington in terms of laying down general rules about what you can and can't do with this technology i mean i do i do point to a success case in the u.s which is illinois uh, one of our states here passed very early on in 2008 something called the biometric information privacy act and it says that a company that wants to use you know, uh, face print or fingerprints or a voice print needs to get consent from citizens before doing so. And because of that law, Clearview AI and many other technology companies have faced a, a, a lot of problems there. Facebook at one point had to pay a $650 million settlement because it used um, people's face prints to do photo tagging so that it would automatically tag your friends in photos. And so that law has been, you know, has been very powerful in keeping out kind of companies uh, offering products like Clearview AI. The problem right now is it just kind of depends on whether you, where it depends on where you live, whether your, your face is protected or you have kind of protection over your biometrics. So that's um, ironic. If you're in Illinois, you're protected. If you go over, if you, if you drive to, uh, I don't know, Ohio or, or, or a neighboring state, then suddenly the cameras come on. I wonder whether for all this new technology, I wonder whether the story ultimately is the same. It fits into all the problems in America, particularly associated with race. Uh, you wrote a, a very chilling story about an eight-month-old uh, African-American woman who was arrested after false facial recognition 
match um, and that you also write about how Google's photo app still can't find gorillas and neither can apples, but it has, of course, racial implications. Is ultimately all the problems with society, particularly race, inequality, gender inequality, is it simply compounded with this supposedly new technology? It often is. I mean, a lot of the biases um, that exist in society are, are basically baked into the technology with facial recognition technology specifically. Many of the people who are working on it uh, would use just white men as their example photos. And so for like Richard, like the, the, the infamous Richard Schwartz, we should show his photo. <laughs> Yeah, and so they would make technology that worked for them, that worked on them, and then it didn't work on other types of people. One of the early facial recognition vendors, uh, I talked to uh, its leader, and he said, yeah, you know, it was in the early 2000s, they were rolling out facial recognition technology in airports. They had used it at the Super Bowl, this big football event, and he said, we got a project in South Africa, and we had to pull out because it just didn't work on people who had darker skin. Charming, um, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, we do see, um, we, we do see these kinds of biases baked in. And I think that's one of the big criticisms I see of AI companies is that, you know, this is proprietary tech. We don't know how it works. We don't know how it's tested. Um, with facial recognition technology specifically, it had these flaws for decades and yet it was being used in the real world. And so we're starting to see some of those cases of people being falsely arrested because they know the technology was used. But I wonder what cases we kind of don't know about over the years where it wasn't disclosed that facial recognition was involved in why your you know, visa application was denied or why you were unable to get a passport. Well, let's end, Kashmir, on a, a particularly chilling note. Your, the title of your book is brilliant. Your face belongs to us. And that seems to be literally true in China. The Chinese have used this type of technology, it seems, to discriminate against their, their Muslim minorities. How much is China pioneering not just this technology or companies like Clearview, but an entire system built around this, a new kind of high-tech authoritarianism in their social uh, initiative uh, which might become an alternative model for liberal democracy in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, often with a book like Your Face Belongs to Us, at the end, you would kind of forecast what might happen in a worst case scenario if we don't control facial recognition technology. But all I had to really do was point to places where it's further along, uh, like Russia and like China, where, you know, China has rolled out the social credit score, which determines what kind of services you have access to, you know, whether you can ride a certain train. And they have paired that with tracking of people's phones, tracking of people's faces. And they use it, you know, not just for repressing kind of human rights of minority groups, but also for bizarre things like controlling and punishing what people wear in public. And so they would use facial recognition technology on people who wore pajamas and give them tickets and publicly shame them. Um, and just enforcing the law to an extent that some people might not be happy with. Like anytime you jaywalk, uh, there are cameras that can just pick up your face and then you get a ticket for it. Um, and so, yes, I think looking to what China is doing is a possible preview of what could happen elsewhere if we don't make kind of different decisions and how we control the tech and, and how ubiquitous it is. 
As John Ronson wrote, uh, you've been publicly shamed. Now your face belongs to us, Kashmir. We know your face. Can you change your face? Uh, you can wear a ski mask. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's probably the only way you can definitely not be identified. During the pandemic, all of the face, rec face recognition technology companies um, did train their software. So it works even when you're wearing a COVID mask, um, which, is, which is pretty wild. Just having the information from your eyes can be enough to still identify you.